Good evening, brothers and sisters. I am deeply thankful and joyful that you are here this evening. That the Lord brought you here. Christmas time is sometimes a difficult time for ministries of the church. I remember last year we had a Bible study between Christmas and New Year. We had four people, so I'm joyful that you're here this evening. We had a lot of people here, but anyways, Christmas is a time of joy. We rejoice here today because of the dawning of the hope. Of our salvation and the rising of the sun of righteousness upon our souls, we rejoice because the expectation and the longing for ages have been fulfilled. We rejoice for unto us is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. Let us rejoice this evening, therefore, as we dive into the Word of God and worship Jesus Christ, the Child who was born and the Son who was given. Unto us, let's pray. Lord, our God, we raise our voice and our prayers to you, O Lord. I am sensible of the weightiness of the task at hand, and I confess my weakness and my inability to bring forth the depth and the riches of your word and the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God. I pray now, Lord, that you will cause our hearts. To fear and to stand in awe and the wonder of this child who was born unto us, that we may worship him, we may rightly recognize him as truly God and truly man, as our only hope for salvation. As we meditate upon him, I pray that you will magnify him and grow in our hearts a love and affection toward that child who is the only hope of our salvation. We pray, please, O、oh、Lord. Help your servant as he proclaims the word of truth. We pray for attentive ears that we may all incline our hearts to you this evening. We pray, Amen. So, if you ask me to use a word to describe the Christmas season, what word would you choose? What comes to mind when you think about the Christmas season? Well, there are a lot of answers here. You may think of Jesus. You may think of joy. You may think of snow. You may think of family, and so on. But when I think about Christmas season, my first response is always restriction or constraint. Well, sounds a little bit odd. Let me explain to you. It seems to me that there is a sentiment, especially in the church,、uh, that which considers certain things out of place or odd when if they are done outside the Christmas season. If we sing "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" on a Sunday morning in August, you can expect a few people ask you after service why we sing these Christmas hymns out of season. If we hear a sermon on the incarnation of the Son of God in early May, at least some will wonder why the pastor chooses such an unfitting topic to preach on.、Uh, such sentiment reveals something very deep within us. It is as if we should only consider or meditate upon the incarnation or the birth of Christ Jesus during the Christmas season, and when the New Year comes and the Christmas season fades, kind of fades into the past, we move on and the birth of Christ becomes less relevant. And even during the Christmas season, even as we meditate upon the birth of our Savior in the Bible, where do we usually turn to? Well, just those familiar passages, Matthew one and two. Luke one and two, maybe Isaiah seven and nine. Well, therefore, this evening I want to take us to a less familiar passage in the Old Testament to contemplate Christ's birth with you. 
And my goal this evening is to show you that the Bible speaks so much more about the birth of our Lord Jesus and to motivate you, to encourage you, and to draw you to meditate upon Christ's infinite condescension, not merely during this Christmas season, but also throughout the year. So if you have your Bible with you, please turn to the 40th Psalm, verses 5 to 10. Psalm 40 verse 5 to 10, which you can find on page 468 of your pew Bible. Psalm 40, verses 5 to 10. Let me read for you the passage. Psalm 45 to 10. This is the word of God. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open year. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So why is this passage about the birth of Jesus? Let's get this question out of the way first. Two straightforward reasons. Stay with me because this is very important. I really want you to see Jesus in this text. So first reason is in the text. Look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Who has come? What is the scroll of the book? Well, David wrote the psalm, so it must be about David. David is scribing himself, established by God as the king of Israel. And what is the scroll? Well, the scroll has to be the law of Moses written on the scroll. How does the law of Moses write of David? Deuteronomy 17, 15. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by, his very, uh, approved by the Levitical priests. So you can envision David reading the law copied by his very own hands, maybe even Deuteronomy 17 itself, and committing himself to obedience and submission to God's will and the law through the writing of this song. And this is a perfectly acceptable interpretation of verse 7. Behold, I have come. But as Christians who are blessed with the full revelation of the scriptures, we must ask ourselves, is there more, is there more to verse 7? Well, I believe the answer is yes. How? In Luke 4.17, Jesus started his ministry and he entered a synagogue on a Sabbath. A scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he read a portion from Isaiah 61. And then he said, today, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in our hearing. So apparently, Jesus considers himself as the one who has come, and the scroll, which is the entire Old Testament, is writing about him. Jesus says his coming from heaven to earth, or his condescension, 
you'll hear me use this word multiple times, condescension, which simply means a person coming from a higher location to a lower location. In Jesus' case, from heaven to earth. So Jesus considers his condescension or coming to this world the fulfillment of Psalm 40, verse 7. And the second reason why this text is about Christmas is in a larger biblical context. You have heard the principle, use scriptures to interpret the scriptures. Well, if you want to know what a passage in the Bible is about, then see if another scriptural text sheds a clear light. Well, happily for us, Psalm 46-7 is quoted entirely in Hebrews 10, 5-7, which we read together earlier. If you want to turn there quickly, it is on page 1006 of your pew Bible, Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. Pay close attention to the timing of these words. Hebrews 10, 5 to 7. Page 1006. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Well, verse 5 says the timing of the saying, when Christ came into the world, he said, Psalm 46 to 7. In other words, Psalm 46 to 7 is the statement Jesus made to his heavenly father when he became a man born of a woman. And last thing in Hebrews 10, verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me, but a body you have prepared for me. This is what Christmas is about. The eternal Son of God, who is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, took upon the human nature clothed in frail human body. So let us spend this evening considering and meditating upon the body of Christ in Psalm 40. Not the church as the body of Christ, but the actual flesh and bone of Jesus the man. I have three simple points for you. First, we shall consider the wonder of God in the flesh. And then we'll move on to the works accomplished by the body of Christ. And lastly, we'll conclude with some applications. Well, to show you my failed attempt for alliteration, three points, wonder, works, and words of encouragement. So point number one, the wonder of the body of Christ. Well, human beings love wonders. Wonders draw us and entice us. The seven wonders of the ancient world, seven wonders are not enough. People have been debating for years about the eighth wonder of the world with no decisive conclusion. Although personally, I think it has to be the Great Wall of China. We spend a great deal of time, money, and energy in wondering. Why do we go to Niagara Falls for vacation? Because we want to wonder. Why are we attracted to sunrises and sunsets? Because we want to wonder. Why did I come to this country from China? Because I want to wonder. It all comes down to this. Wonders matter to us. And now verse 5 in Psalm 40. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. What are the wondrous deeds of God? Verses 6 and 10 explain. Behold, I have come. The incarnation of the Son of God, the coming of Jesus Christ into this world, is the wonder David marveled at and the wonder that gathered us here this evening. So let's take a moment to slow down and meditate upon this wonder. First of all, let us consider the reality of Christ's condescension. 
There's a great mystery in it that surpasses our understanding. Paul wrote, Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery of godliness? He was manifested in the flesh. It is a mystery. It's inexplicable. It is beyond the explanatory power of the human knowledge. The infinite God became a finite man. The omnipresent Son of God is now constrained in the human body. The most high God is found in the lowest manger. The author of life is now subject to human infirmities and death. The fountain of wisdom and strength now needs to grow in knowledge and stature. While he was laid asleep in the manger, he was still upholding the universe by the word of his power. While he was still powerless under the persecution of men, he was still the judge of the earth over the living and the dead. While he was born in the presence of sinful men, his eyes were still too pure to behold iniquities. Now, what man has the knowledge and wisdom to explain all this to us? How can Jesus become truly God and truly man, divine and human in one person? Any attempt in the history of the church to explain away the mystery and the wonder of the incarnation always, without fail, end up with a heresy. Any analogy to describe the perfect union of God and man and Jesus utterly fail to, fails to capture the fullness of the incarnation. The late Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield wrote, The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man. Is. May we, therefore, humble ourselves before this baby boy and wonder at the mystery of the Son of God and the Son of Man. Well, in addition to the mystery of Christ's condescension, let's also consider and wonder at the lowliness and abasement of Christ when he came into this world. First of all, Jesus came into a world of sin and evil. Jesus did not come to the Garden of Eden in the state of innocence. Jesus did not dwell among men who perfectly reflect the character of God. We would not have wondered if such is the case. No, Jesus came into a world of corruption, evil, and sin, tainted by the vileness and the corruption and the wickedness of men. He came to dwell among sinners who have distorted and perverted the image and the likeness of God in which they were made. Well, whenever I go home from America to China, the poor air quality there always forces me to wear a face mask outside. Well, why? Because the air quality in America, because the air in America is so fresh and the air in China is so polluted. Air in America gives me the breath of life, but the air in China gives me the choke of death. Now, Jesus dwelt from the eternal past uh, in a world of perfection, purity, and holiness. He has not known sin or be tempted by sin. His heart was always filled with joy and righteousness. But the world he stooped down so low into is anything but righteous and good. He was tempted, tested, and in constant presence of sinful men throughout his life. He became a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief and affliction. And moreover, Jesus came not only into a world fundamentally against his upright and perfect nature, but also a world that hates him 
and rejects him. Well, even though the air quality in China is terrible, I still desire to go back to China. Why? Well, because my family is there. I will be welcomed, loved, and praised as a hero and an example to be imitated. Well, not so for Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Well, this world is not only morally corrupt. This world hates him. Hates him more than anything else. Uniting in one voice, shouting, "Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Crucify him!" In fact, this world hates Jesus so much that even those who profess his name are being persecuted, opposed, and killed. Well, would you not wonder then, O、oh、Lord Jesus, why you are the theme of the heavens' praises, the love and the treasure of your heavenly Father, the most exalted Son of God? Why would you come to this world that hates you and rejects you? Why would you lay aside the glory of heaven and come in humiliation to this earth? Why would you endure the mockery and ill treatment of men when the angels of heaven are eager to worship you forever? Why is this, my Lord? Well, lastly, let's consider the wisdom in Christ's condescension. Verse five. Look at verse five again. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. What is David saying here? While、well, the incarnation reveals to us God's thoughts and His sovereign decree to us, the incarnation is not an accident. It has always been God's plan to bring about the salvation of men to our souls. The seed of the woman in Genesis three fifteen. The seed promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, the son of David upon his throne in Second Samuel 7, a child who shall be born unto us in Isaiah 9, the God who shall dwell with us in Isaiah 7. The incarnation is the God-chosen way to save us from our sins. While sin is such a pervasive problem, and men have tried all kinds of ways to solve it. More education, better law enforcement, more therapists, more advanced technology. Or, however, the greatest endeavors by the wisest men in the history have fallen woefully short of the solution. But God said, "No, I will bring my Son into the world to cure the sickness and the deadness in the hearts of men." Incarnation is God's way of saving sinners, and it worked, and it continued to work. For the past two thousand years, well, now that is the wisdom of God. When men's solution and cleverness fail, God's ways always succeed. This is exactly what Paul wrote in First Corinthians one: "Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weaknesses of God is stronger than men." Let us all marvel at God through the incarnation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! Salvation through the incarnation is marvelous and wonderful. Now, how exactly does incarnation save us? Point number two: the works of the body of Christ. What did Jesus do in His body? What are the works of Jesus, the man that purchased salvation for our souls? Our text, Psalm forty-five to ten, lays out three missions and works of Jesus accomplished in the body. Mission number one: proclamation through words. 
Well, this cannot be made more obvious from our text. Verse 5, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not constrained my lips. Verse 10, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. Jesus came into the world to make known God's salvation by preaching, teaching, and heralding the good news to us. Why do we as a Christian church highly value what's going on here? Highly uphold the seemingly ordinary and old-fashioned way of preaching the word of God? Well, it is ultimately because Jesus preached God's word throughout his ministry. Pick up any gospel book. You will find that Jesus preached and teach, that Jesus preached and taught day in and day out. Let's just take Mark as an example. Mark 1.14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark 1.21, on Sabbath he entered a synagogue and was preaching. Mark 1.38, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Mark 2.2, many were gathered together and he was preaching the word to them. Mark 2.14, all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. Mark 4.1, again, he began to teach beside the sea. Well, to summarize all of this, Jesus came into the world to, to teach for the specific purpose of preaching the gospel to sinners, calling them to repent and believe. But why is Jesus preaching essential to our salvation? What do we lose if Jesus never came to preach but only came to die for our sins. Well, this is where the Reformers and the Puritans are so helpful. John Calvin first wrote in the Institutes the three most important offices of Jesus Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And then the 1689 London Baptist Confession further explains, the number and the order of offices is necessary. Well, that is to say, Jesus has to be prophet, priest, and king and in this specific order. So prophet comes first. Why? Why is, it, why is Jesus' prophet, prophetical office so important? Well, 1689 continues, For in respect of our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. So you see, our problem is that we are foolish and we are ignorant. We do not know God because of our sin and the hatred against him. And we can never know God unless someone teaches us. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. How did Jesus make God known to us? John 17, 8. I have given them the words that you gave me. The Westminster Shorter Catechism concurs. Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. Without Jesus' teaching and instruction, you and I would never have known God or be wise in the way of salvation. Mission number two, obedience through deeds. Verse six, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open year. What does open year refer to? A little bit odd. Well, let's first take the opposite of an open year, which is the stopped year. Well, the Bible often connects stopped years with hatred and the ob objection or rejection of the word of God and the instructions of God. 
Speaking of Jerusalem's evil doing, God said, "But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear." When Stephen exposed the Jews' hardness of heart, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So, if a stopped ear means hatred and rejection of God's truth, well, then an open ear must mean obedience and love for God's law. Isaiah wrote concerning the Messiah, "The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious; I turned not backward." So you see, open ear means perfect obedience. Also, just listen to verse six: "In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear." What、well, does that sound familiar? Do you hear an echo from somewhere else in the in the Bible? Well, for Samuel fifteen twenty two, the prophet Samuel rebuked the disobedient King Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Well, again, open ear equals obeying the voice of the Lord. Well, Spurgeon commenting on this verse said, "Our Lord was quick to hear and perform His Father's will. His ears were as if." Excavated down to his soul, there were clear passages down to the fountains of his soul. So, if you still have any doubt about this ver- this phrase, open ear, verse eight should expel all your uncertainty. I delight to do your will, O、oh、my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus took upon the flesh to perfectly obey and fulfill the law of God. Well, why does Jesus' obedience matter? What do we lose if Jesus never came to obey the law of God perfectly, but just to die for our sins? Well, you see, God created us so that we may dwell with Him and be happy in Him. But to live with God, the holy and the righteous God, we ourselves must be holy and righteous, as His law requires of us. However, all we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way. If you have ever wondered, How God sees humanity apart from Jesus, Psalm fourteen two. It's talking about you and me. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What did He see? They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. To live with God means to be right with God, but we're not. So we desperately need the one who is perfectly righteous and obedient to God's law, and we need Him to give us His rightness with God, so that we may be restored to God Himself. In other words, without the obedience of Jesus in the body, there is no salvation for sinners. Mission number three: redemption through death. Verse six again: In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Well, David mentioned two types of offerings in his verse: burnt offering and sin offering. Brothers and sisters, read Leviticus because it tells you what must be done to solve our sin problem. Burnt offering and sin offerings are the two offerings God designed to deal with our sin in the Old Testament time. Burnt offering is is to be entirely burnt upon the altar in the place of sinners to graphically represent God's wrath burning against sinners for their sins and to bring forgiveness of men's offenses against God. 
sin offering is a little bit different. It brings not just forgiveness of sin, but it also brings cleansing and purification from sin. You see, sin makes us filthy, vile, and unclean in God's eyes. With the blood of bulls and goats, the worshiper will be made clean, ceremonially or outwardly or externally. These two offerings, sin offering and burnt offering, were a way to solve the sin problem for generations. Well, but why? Why does the verse, verse 6, why does verse 6 say that Lord, the Lord has not delighted in sacrifices and offerings? Didn't he himself command these two offerings? Well, the simple reason is that the animal sacrifices, the burnt offerings and sin offerings can never truly deal with sin effectively. For it is, pos- it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The indignation of God against the sinners is infinite because sinners' rebellion is infinitely serious in the eyes of the infinitely holy God. Then how can a finite burnt offering endure the infinite anger of God against our sins? The filth and the uncleanness of men are in the heart. Then how can animal blood purify merely the flesh or cleanse us from the depth of our hearts? We're in desperate need of a better sacrifice, an offering more pleasing to God. And that is exactly the final mission of Jesus and his earthly body, to die for us, to truly endure the infinite wrath of God against you and me, and to cleanse and sanctify our conscience once and for all. Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. How? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is why we can't sever uh, Christmas from Good Friday because the birth of Jesus in the body leads us directly to the cross. Or he took upon the flesh so that it may be broken to save you and me. Nails and spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. May we always remember the marvelous works of the body of Christ, his proclamation of the gospel through words, his obedience unto God and deeds, and his redemption of sinners through his atoning death. Finally, brothers, let's quickly conclude with some applications. Application number one, take up the entire scriptures and consider Christ Jesus. Well, hopefully by expositing Psalm 40, I've convinced you that the Old Testament teaches us the incarnation of the Son of God. David, who lived over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, wrote of his coming. Well, not only David, but also Moses, who spoke of the seed of the woman and another prophet like himself to be raised up for God from Israel. And not only Moses, but also Job, who looked forward to the one who would argue the case of a man with God as the son of man does with his neighbor. Not only Job, but also Isaiah, who prophesied, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. Not only Isaiah, but also Daniel, who saw in a vision a son of a man who shall be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Brothers and sisters, 
All of the Bible is all about Jesus. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are given so that we may know Jesus and be made wise in the way of our salvation through him. If Jesus used the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets to explain his person and works after his resurrection, should we not follow the instruction of the Lord and search all the scriptures for him? Well, challenge yourselves in the new year to read the word, all of the word of God. Leave the familiar passages and the verses and venture into new territories of the Bible. And may God give you understanding and show you Christ. Application two, run to Christ in our weakness, sorrow, suffering, and pain. Have you ever cried out or wondered in utter confusion? I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Lord, do you not care? Well, of course he does. How do I know he cares? Well, look at the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The incarnation provides unfading comfort to the hearts of struggling and suffering saints. Jesus comforts us by leaving the glory and honor of heaven and entering into our suffering, experiencing our weaknesses, enduring our pain and triumphing over our sorrow. The incarnation is the decisive proof that God deeply cares for you. Jesus entered into this world as a man so that he may sympathize with us and help us in our weakness and sorrow. He willingly and joyfully says, Behold, I have come. This is his call for you and for me to turn to him for grace in a time of need and strength on a day of trouble. Whether you are in the most trying moment or the daily vexation or frustration, whether it is a fresh wound or a chronic pain of your heart, whether it is grief without, uh, with a particular reason or despondency with a, without a cause, Jesus knows, Jesus cares, and he sympathizes. Christmas is a season of joy, but maybe you think it's a season of joy for other people, and you are too grieved for that joy, to participate in that joy. Brothers and sisters, I say to you, with my tears and with my joy, remember and flee to that baby in the manger, for he is your only comfort in this life. Application three, rejoice for all that this child did for us. Christmas is a season of rejoicing for everyone. Workers get to enjoy the much needed rest from a year long labor. Families rejoice to see those familiar faces that have finally come home. Children burst into laughter as they receive the toys they have been coveting for months. Business owners uh, labor joyfully to make a fortune before the new year comes. Everyone seems to have a reason to rejoice during the Christmas season. However, we Christians know and we ought to rejoice even more because we have a deeper and more steadfast reason to rejoice. Our Savior has come. He has come to save us from our sins. Saints in Christ, I call you to remember your former state of sin and ruin and be glad for the deliverance God has given you in Christ Jesus. If you are apart from Christ this day, I urge you to add to heaven's joy by repenting from your sins and believing in the one who has come, lived, died, and was resurrected. For there is no name given among men under the heavens by which we could be saved except the name Jesus Christ. If you want to have everlasting joy, go to Jesus. Martin Luther preached in his Christmas sermon 500 years ago, 
reason and will would ascend and seek above. But if you would have joy, bend yourself down to this place. There you will find a baby boy, as he sucks, is washed, and dies. There is no joy but in this boy. Take him away, you face the majesty which terrifies. I know of no god but this one in the manger. Let's therefore remember and worship our only God in the manger. Lastly, application four: eagerly and patiently wait for the coming and the return of Christ. Christ has come and stepped into this world as a man. He has lived in perfect righteousness, died for our iniquities, and rose from the dead to impart us hope for eternal life. Now he has ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, away from us and away from this world. However, just as Christ has appeared once in the body, he accomplished the work of salvation for us. And the first time, he will come again to this world. This time he appears, he shall bring us home to the presence of God and to His kingdom. So we'll always be with the Lord. Before departing from this world, He promised us, "In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where where I am, you may be also." May this be the eager longing and the steadfast hope all our days. Remember, my brothers and sisters, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. May our hearts be oriented toward Him all our days. Well, now I must turn to you who do not know Jesus, who are apart from Christ. The first time Jesus Christ condescended into this world, He was born a baby child. A man of meekness and humility, sorely afflicted and despised. This he has endured, so that you may believe in him and be saved. But I must solemnly warn you: he will return no longer as a powerless child, but as the champion of the heavenly hosts. No longer to bring you salvation, but sentence judgment upon the living and the dead. No longer as a lowly servant, but as the conquering King of Kings. Therefore, I must plead with you, poor and miserable souls apart from Jesus, without God and hope in this world. As you have heard the works and the wonder of Christ this evening, harden not your heart. Run to Him in repentance. Confess your sins to Him. Call upon His name and be saved before it's all too late. Christ will come again in His in the fullness of His majesty, and may you become a partaker. Of his glory, even this very day, let's pray.